0: Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 13. On the third day, new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words to the people, to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up on the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. May God bless the reading of His word. Please be seated.
1: Good evening. My name is Andrew Meredith, and I am an elder in training here at Grace. Uh, I will be bringing you the word this evening, this stormy evening. Uh, Our current series is entitled Living Stones, and it is taken from a passage in the second chapter of Peter's first letter where he describes God's building his church over time through the lives of his saints, his living stones, with a reminder that we too are being built into this same spiritual house. If you have been here the last few weeks, you will no doubt have noticed the continued emphasis on a portion uh, of this same passage by Brooks and before him by Josh. Let me see if this works. It does. All right. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Brooks, especially last week, honed in on these promises uh, to highlight the identity of who you are in Christ. Uh, There are lies that your flesh, the world, and the devil want you to believe about yourself, things that you may even tell yourself. I'm an idiot. I'm a horrible person. I'm unwanted. I'm unlovable. But for those in Christ, these statements are lies. How do I know? Because they don't line up with what God in this passage says is true of you. And as Brooks ended the sermon by saying, "It doesn't matter what you feel. What matters is truth. God's word creates the reality of which it speaks. So if He declares you chosen, holy, and precious, then that is what you are. So knowing that it was my turn to pr- that my turn to preach was coming." I am grateful that this particular passage was continuously emphasized uh, because Peter doesn't just pull these promises out of nowhere. He got them from the passage that Pastor Jeff just read. um, A promise to Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, at the foot of Mount Sinai. So, to catch us up for where we are at the story, um, the story of redemption, Moses, last week, Brooks covered the burning bush. Moses leaves the burning bush, and he heads to Egypt. And God performs mighty acts of power through his hands, Uh, acts of judgment on Egypt. Plague after plague is poured out over the Egyptians as God, one by one, shows uh, that the Egyptian gods, the gods of the Nile, the gods of the sun, the god of the harvest, and so on, are no match for him. In each plague, God makes a distinction between his people and the Egyptians. Finally, God decrees one last plague on all of Egypt, on all of Egypt's gods. We find him saying this in Exodus 10, uh, that those that worship, his, this, this last plague would be on the gods and those that worship them. He is going to take the life of the firstborn son in every household, One problem, though, through their 400 years in Egypt, many Israelites had often taken up, had also taken up, worshipping Egypt's gods. Uh, And so, they deserve this judgment as well. Long story short, God graciously provides a way for the Israelites to substitute an unblemished lamb in the place of their firstborn son they were to kill this lamb and sprinkle it on the doorposts of their house. And then, when God sends the angel of judgment, the angel of death, on them, thematic, he would, he would see the blood on the doorpost of the lamb, and he would accept the substitutionary sacrifice in the place of the firstborn, and he would pass over that household sparing the judgment. That's why the, the feast that was to commemorate that event was called the Passover. Pharaoh himself loses his son and temporarily he loses his will to maintain control of his slaves. Israel heads out with Moses at the head and God leads his people by way of the glory cloud to the Red Sea. Uh, Pharaoh, meanwhile, changes his mind and pursues the Israelites with his army intent on re-enslaving them. In what is perhaps the most famous scene in all of the Old Testament, God comes down in the glory cloud of fire, placing himself between his people and and the Egyptians, once again making a distinction. He has Moses lift his staff over the Red Sea and he parts the water so that his people can cross through on dry land. This event will be referred to later as Israel's baptism. And as the waters of baptism are waters of distinction and judgment, as well as waters of mercy, when the, when the Egyptians try to follow the Israelites into the Red Sea, God violently returns the water over, over them and he drowns the pursuers. So the Israelites are free. And rejoicing in their salvation, they head off in the direction of Mount Sinai. Which brings us to where Jeff just read for us. On the third moon, which is about 40 to 50 days after these events, the people, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim, and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The first thing to note is that this is the land that Moses knew very well. He had spent 40 years shepherding his father-in-law's flock there. Uh, His lost years of shepherding sheep was not wasted. God does not waste time. Moses would use this knowledge of the land gained by shepherding his father's flock, his father-in-law's flock, to shepherd God's flock for 40 years. The, this mountain is the same mountain where in Exodus 3, God met Moses in the burning bush. So the Lord called out to him, to him out of the mountain, saying, thus you shall say oops, to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, Peter, in 1 Peter 2.9, the passage I just read, this is where he pulls the treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These were words originally spoken to Israel with one small but very important difference. If. If you keep, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be. This is a conditional phrase. They will be God's people if they hold fast to his covenant, which we are about to see is his law. God's covenant in this case is his law. So, Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. They affirm they ratify this covenant that God is about that about to give them. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. So God is coming to the Israelites, but he's not going to be visible to them. Just as the veil of the temple later on will veil, will... Uh, cover the presence of God will separate God from his unholy people, so now he is veiling himself behind a cloud. And also, they may believe you forever. He is doing this for the sake of Moses. This is to be a confirmation of Moses being the mediator between God and his people. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to, him, to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. In other words, have them purify themselves and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. This is an ongoing theme throughout all of the scriptures, Old Testament and New. The holiness of God cannot be approached by sinful man, except through an acceptable mediator, which we will see in this case is Moses. So... What follows is exactly what God described throughout the rest of Exodus 19. Yahweh comes down on Mount Sinai. He thunders out the Ten Commandments, the moral law, the foundation of all relationship with him. This evening, we are going to look at this law to determine three things. What is it? What role did it have for the Israelites? And importantly, what role does it have for us today? Would you pray with me and for me as we begin? Father God, you have given us a law. You have given us clear instructions. Instructions on how to live before you in a manner pleasing to you. Lord, I ask that you bless this time that we spend together. Um, You keep us safe as well. Uh, May the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. May your spirit speak through me and open up the ears of those who hear to hear. ask this in your name, amen. So, what is the law? We'll pick up in chapter 20 for those of you who have a Bible with you. uh, Some of this, I I don't have slides that will go through this chapter. You can see that I've summarized it, but I don't have slides. So if you have a hard copy of your Bible or your Bible on your phone, that would be a good time to pull it out. We'll pick up in chapter 20, we'll read a certain portion of it, and then we'll come back and discuss. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So a few preliminary marks, cons, remarks concerning these Ten Commandments. First, the Ten Commandments are often broken into two tables, Commandments 1-4 through four, and then 5-10. through ten. The first four commandments can be summarized succinctly as love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Commandments 5 through 10 can be summarized as love your neighbor as yourself. This is how Jesus summarized them. And he says, adding to the end, on these hang all the law and the prophets. Here is Paul saying... A similar thing in two different locations, both Romans and Galatians. In saying this, Jesus is summarizing a summary that these Ten Commandments will soon be expanded into hundreds and hundreds of laws over the course of the next four books. But they all have their basis in the Ten Commandments and they all boil down to two simple commands. Love God, love man. Do I have this? We'll go back. Love God, love man. Law and love are permanently connected. How do you love God? You keep his commandments. How do you love others? You keep God's commandments. Simple, yet deep. People can and have spent a lifetime writing volumes on these ten commandments. And I'll run through some exposition of the first three just to show you. And keep in mind, this is in no way exhaustive. So we'll start with the first one. Actually, we'll start with the introduction. I am the Lord, or Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God here begins with who he is and what he has done. And this is important. God has rescued them from out of slavery, fulfilling his promise that he made to Abraham back in Genesis 15. Uh, Just note for now that God's demand for obedience flows out of his redemption It flows out of who he is and what he has done. Basically, because he has already done this for them, this is how they are to love him. This is how they are to act. This is how they are to live. Their obedience is a response to their redemption. You shall have no other gods before me, meaning that God and God only is God on high. There is nothing in existence above him, no being is higher. The creator the Creator God is the covenant God of Israel. There is no other. The Israelites were not to worship another God while he dwelt in their midst because, as he says in the second, which we'll get here in a moment, he is a jealous God. Idolatry throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God considers worshiping any other being to be spiritual adultery. Idolatry is... Equated to spiritual adultery. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. This command is to protect the absolute uniqueness of God and the holiness and the majesty of God. There is nothing that man can make that will properly represent God on this earth. Soon after these commandments, Moses will go up into the cloud for the mountain, on the mountain for 40 days where God will show him how to build the tabernacle. And during those 40 days, the Israelites are going to assume that he's dead. They're going to assume that he died. He went up into the cloud and he died. So they, they tell Aaron, Moses is dead. Make for us a golden calf. Make for us an idol that will go before us. Aaron complies and he makes a golden bull. Uh, but he wants to keep the people worshipping Yahweh. So he compromises and he presents the bull to the Israelites as Yahweh, behold the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Aaron thought that he was honoring God by doing so. In the ancient Middle East a bull represented unimaginable unimaginable power and strength but it didn't honor God at all. He and the Israelites, Aaron and the Israelites incurred God's wrath because first A man-made image, no matter how glorious, tames and limits God. The Israelites could not approach the mountain, lest they died, and they were terrified of the voice that spoke to them out of it. But they could approach the calf. And sure, it had great worth and it symbolized power, but it was impotent. It couldn't do anything. They would go on and do things before this calf that they shouldn't be doing. Um, Two, a man-made image cannot fully capture all of who God is. God is not just powerful, he is power itself. But, God is also love, and light, and truth, and goodness, and beauty, and thrice holy. No carved idol or image could capture all of these aspects of who he is. Third, and finally... A man made image of God ends up belittling man himself. Why? Because what is man? According to God's word, what does it mean to be human? This is fundamental. We find it in the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1. We are the images of God. And the word used in that verse means idol. In Genesis 1, the word used there means idol or carved image. We are created to be living images to the living God. I want to pause here for a second on this point because this is no small matter. This is the basis of all law and all morality. You'll often hear this question and maybe you've asked it yourself, why does God care what I do? Why does God care that I told a little white lie? Why does God care who I sleep with? Why does God care about the little sins that I do that don't hurt anyone? The answer, because you bear his image. You represent him in everything you think, say, and do. It's who you are as a human being. If I lie to my wife, for just for completely hypothetical purposes, dear, if I lie to my wife, I am not just sinning against her. I am declaring to myself, her, anyone who hears of it, or hears the misinformation, The watching principalities and powers, all of creation, that my God is a God who lies, who has a flexible relationship with the truth when it is convenient for him. But God is truth itself. As his representative, I am bearing false witness about who God is and slandering or blaspheming my God when I lie. This is why God takes sin very personally. This is why King David, after impregnating one of his soldier's wives and then murdering his soldier in order to cover it up, he can say to God in Psalm 51, concerning the whole affair, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Sin against an image bearer of God is sin against God. Sin against yourself is sin against God. This is the basis of our condemnation. When God created Adam in the image of God, he created him in true righteousness and holiness to reflect himself. Righteousness, the word, it means being in right standing with the law. So Adam had righteousness. Uh, Righteousness is a reflection of who God is and who we are. When Adam rebelled, he lost this original righteousness for both himself and his children. You can find this in Romans 5. But he didn't stop being the image of God. He was still human. Now he was just a bad image. One more example to help this concept sink in just a little bit. I have a dog named Cleo. Some of you have met her. She is a very sweet dog, a very energetic dog, uh, and is usually obedient. She's getting better. But there are times where she sneaks around, where she steals toilet paper and chews on it and then tries to hide it. Uh, when she eats my son's spoons, or just straight up disobeys me. Uh, In all this, Cleo, my dog, cannot sin. She can't sin. She is blameless before the law. Returning to Genesis 1, God created animals according to their own kinds. When Cleo misbehaves, she represents nothing higher than canine kind. To put it glibly, Cleo was made in the image of dog. But, when God made you and me, he made us in his own image after his likeness. Your actions represent something higher than yourself. And if you say, that's not fair, I don't want want this to be the case, I didn't sign up for this. My response is, too bad. That's who you are, that's what it means to be human. That's why the law... God's standard for righteousness applies to you. It is how we are to properly be human, how we are to relate to one another in love, and how we are to relate to our creator in love. I said I would expound upon the first three commandments, and so I'll be brief with this last one. I highlight it especially because it is often misunderstood. You shall not take the the name of the Lord your God in vain. This is often taught in popular culture as do not swear in a very specific way. But the meaning is far greater than that. The word take in this verse means to bear or to carry. God puts his name on his holy people. The high priest symbolized this by wearing a turban that said holy to Yahweh on his forehead. And they were not to treat this privilege as a vain or a useless or meaningless thing. They were to honor the Lord as holy in everything they did. And yes, part of that means do not swear using any of God's names, but that was, that's just a small part of it. That's not the whole thing. So we'll stop here with the exposition for the sake of time, but you can see how us being image bearers, bearing the name of our creator directly informs our understanding of the rest of these seven commandments. We are not God, but we represent God. The law consists of loving God, by imagining him rightly and imaging him rightly, loving one another by recognizing each other as fellow image bearers. The law tells us how to be good image bearers. Without understanding of what the law is, we move along to what the law was for Israel. It was for their blessing culminating in salvation if they were righteous, and it culminated in their curses and in ultimately, damnation, if they were unrighteous. If, then, back to the beginning, it's a conditional. They are a collective Adam. Do this and you will live. Life was explained in terms of immense earthly blessings. This, this life that was promised. Uh, land, seed, earthly fellowship with God culminating in everlasting life. This is why David in Psalm 23 can say, at the end i can dwell i will dwell in the house of the lord forever and this is why asaph, asaph can say in psalm 73 i am continually with you you hold my right hand and you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory they had their eyes set on eternal relation with on a eternal relationship with god how then are they blessed we return to the if then clause from earlier if you obey then you will be blessed. Do this and live. Follow the law and be righteous. To summarize, from Adam to Moses and beyond, there, was, there has only ever been one way to salvation perfect standing before the law. We see this here, but we also see it in the New Testament. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, the whole, all of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 5 through 7, is an explanation of the law. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The biblical text is clear, it is binary. Either you are righteous or you are unrighteous, and there is no in-between. As James, the brother of Jesus, says, For whomsoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of breaking it all. James 2.10. Or, as Jesus himself says, same Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The penalty for unrighteousness is equally clear. Curse, death, damnation. Earthly separation separation of creature from creator. Separation of soul from body. Culminating in eternal separation from God. But as I stated earlier... Adam had lost that original righteousness with which he was endowed and he lost it for all his children with him. So the Israelites couldn't obey the law. We can't obey the law. We, in sin, and in sin, the Bible defines it as lawlessness, we are twisted. We despise God and his authority. Paul in Romans 7 describes it as a natural impulse to do the opposite of whatever the law tells us to do. The law says, do not covet, and now all my flesh wants to do is covet as much as it can. I find creative ways to covet, as Paul says. God is aware of this, and so he graciously gives Israel the ceremonial law with the moral law. It's a positive law, or positive laws, on top of the moral law. These ceremonial laws consist in ceremonial washings and specific sacrifices that temporarily provide for the sinfulness of man while pointing beyond themselves to something greater. I already mentioned one instance of such with the blood of the lamb on the doorpost during the Passover, a gracious substitution of one life for another. Paul would later in Galatians call these very same ceremonial laws tutors. They were in place to teach Israel by elementary principles. Elementary principles, any teachers in here, it's like a preschooler would learn their ABCs and their 1-2-3s in order to build on them later. The ceremonial law was was elementary principles in order to teach the Israelites of what it means to live before a holy God and to look forward to what the Messiah would accomplish when he comes. Briefly, there were ceremonial laws that served to set the Israelites apart as separate, clean, and holy. These laws included circumcision, not wearing certain clothing, not eating certain foods. There were ceremonial laws that served to illustrate the necessity of a mediator between God and man. This would be the Levites, the priests, the high priest, the veil in front of the holy of holies in the temple. And there were ceremonial laws that served to illustrate that the wages of sin was death the sacrificial system with the many prescribed sacrifices. And yet these laws had no power to remit sins in themselves except that they as signs pointed beyond themselves to the coming one, the seed of the woman, the lion of Judah, the priests like Melchizedek, the prophet like Moses from Deuteronomy 18, the king like David who would fulfill them And I point you to Isaiah 53 for the clearest Old Testament exposition of this hope, but I do not have time to cover that right now. So Israel was to respond in gratitude for her deliverance out of bondage by obedience to their new master who bought them. To do so, they were given the moral laws to obey and the ceremonial laws pointing forward to Christ to carry out in faith whenever they failed. And there were a lot of laws, a lot of washings, a lot of sacrifices, it was burdensome, it was a yoke difficult to bear, but it was doable for a sinful people in order for a holy God to dwell in their midst. So what about for us today, on this side of Christ's advent? Christ has come, and in his own words to his disciples after his resurrection in Luke, he says to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Christ is the fulfillment of the ceremonial law. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is our Passover, 1 Corinthians 5-7. Christ is our high priest who mediates between God and man. Christ is the divine image of God who became the perfect human image of God, fulfilling the law in every way so that by uniting us to himself, he could restore us back to what we were always meant to be. He has taken the curse of the law, which consisted in judgment, death, and damnation. He has taken that in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, The Father made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So returning to the if-then clause of Exodus 19, you will notice, and I don't have the slide, I should put it, Peter drops that clause. He drops the if-then clause. There is no clause. Christian, if you are in Christ, these statements are true of you. There is no more if-then clause, do this and you shall live. Christ has done, it is finished, believe and live. You are not saved by your righteousness, your keeping of the law, because Christ perfectly kept it on your behalf. And in him, your image is being renewed day by day from glory to glory. So, do we abolish the law? Paul responds in Romans 3, By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Be perfectly clear, to reiterate, salvation is by grace through faith apart from works of the law. It is a gift of God, but union with Christ comes with being indwelt by his spirit. If you don't have his spirit, then you don't have Christ. And his spirit pours the love of God into our hearts. Romans 5.5 So what is that love of God. Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? You will keep my commandments. 1 John 5, 3 states, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. A Christian then will love God and love others, not out of fear of being smited or losing their salvation. Your salvation is secure, you are united with Christ who has already accomplished that. It will be because you were brought out of darkness of sin, misery, and death into his marvelous light. Our obedience is out of gratitude to the one who saved us. So, the biblical pattern is law, law, gospel, law. It's an Oreo with a gooey gospel center. The law shows us our sin, and it shows us our inability to be made right with God and the terrible penalty that our current trajectory will incur, and it drives us to Christ. Gospel. In Christ, he offers to us his perfect righteousness that he earned by keeping the law perfectly. And he takes our condemnation and curse upon himself, redeems us and reconciles us to God. And then, out of gratitude for what God has done, law again, we serve him and obey him with hearts filled with a supernatural love for him. In closing, there are only two places that you may be when hearing this. As I said earlier, our standing before God's law is binary. You are either righteous or you are unrighteous. You are in darkness or you are in marvelous light. You are either sheltered under the blood of Christ, covered in his righteous life, or you are not. And if you are not, consider today that you will die. And afterwards comes judgment. The book of your life will be opened. And as an image-bearer, every thought, word, and deed you have ever done, whether openly or in secret, will be read and judged by the law, and there will be no escape. It's too late for you to reform yourself by obeying the law. You cannot make up for the ways in which you've already broken it. But today is the day of reconciliation in Christ. He has been lifted up and is drawing all men to himself. For those for whom Jesus is your Passover... You have accepted him as Lord and are united to him by faith. Learn from the psalmist in Psalm 119. The whole psalm, longest chapter in all the Bible, he, is, he just loves the law and is just talking constantly about how much he loves the law. Delight yourself in the law, knowing that it, in it, God has shown you how you are to love him. Do good works for the glory of your Father and the power of the Spirit. You are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand for you to walk in them. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And I think it is fitting to close here with the words from Hebrews 12, 12 through 29, which I think will give us a good contrast between the old covenant and the new. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to mount zion to the city of the living god the heavenly jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to god the judge of all to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of abel see that you do not refuse him who is speaking For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Father God, Lord, I ask that you refine us, you shape us, you mold us, you conform us into the image of your perfect son. May our desire be for you, and may that all that we do be done out of love for you, Thank you, Father. Amen.